uh, with, um, I don't know, close to 500 people and kids in attendance. And one of the things that they did, they, they um, gave kids the opportunity to make professions of faith, and there was 132 of them that did. And so one of the things they have to do after that is to uh, encourage pastors of the local churches that sent their kids into Karumpa to do that, uh, to follow up on the kids and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. So one day, my son-in-law was taking a lot of follow-up materials out to churches where these kids had come from, and he had his two youngest children with him. And as he was driving along, there was a a vehicle coming the other direction that wasn't staying in his lane, and it forced my son-in-law off the road. And the uh, motorbike obviously rolled over, and it landed on um, my youngest granddaughter, my, my granddaughter's legs, and broke two bones in one, play, in one, in one leg. So fortunately, Christopher was able to uh, pick her up and pick his son up, and uh, he got the bike going again, and they drove back to the clinic uh, in, in, the, in the village. And she got excellent care. We praise the Lord for the doctors, nurses, the team uh, of clinicians that are in Ukarumpa, and they, they got her going again. She's in a cast. She uses her crutches, but uh, she has been able to go back to school. I thank you for continuing to pray for my, my kids and grandkids over in Papua New Guinea. It can be a very dangerous place. Uh, when that accident happened, it was the third accident in a very, very short time that had happened to people involved in the aviation department, which my son-in-law is. He's one of the pilots, one of the jungle pilots over there. And it was the third accident pertaining to the, uh, the pilots. And so uh, they, all, they all survived, uh, but uh, one of the other pilots did get hurt enough to be out of work for a week or so. And so you can only attribute that to um, spiritual warfare. The old devil is not all that pleased about the good work that's going on there, and especially that uh, they're reaching out to these kids and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I just, I'm so thankful for the work of my daughter and my son-in-law and their kids. Uh, my oldest grandson over there, he, is, he was an active participant even at the age of 12, he was an active participant in the program and reaching kids for Christ. It's just an exciting time for them, but it comes at the cost. It comes at a cost of the devil doesn't like that, and he tries to, to stop it. He tries to prevent it. So when you think of my kids in Papua New Guinea, or when you think of me, think of them, and pray for them, because uh, it's such an important work, but it's also a work that is full of <clears throat> opposition from Satan, primarily. Obviously, the people are responding pretty well. The theme of my message today is based on five words <clears throat> in, chap- in chapter 8. 
from verse 12 in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And uh, I I gave you the scripture verses uh, that we read for uh, the responsive reading. And so, so you have that in front of you. But you'll notice that verse 12, we, verse 12 started out with, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Of course, nobody likes to be in debt. But Apostle Paul told the believers in Rome that they were debtors. They were in debt. They're obviously in debt to God in some way because of the great work that God had been doing in their hearts and lives. And uh, if you are a believer here today, uh, this speaks to your heart as well as to mine. We are debtors. We have some obligations. Uh, We owe some things to God, and we want to look at that. Of course, folks can avoid the debt. They don't want to be in debt. You can avoid the debt by not having anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I doubt that there's anybody here today that wants to go in that direction because you have found in Christ to be a wonderful Savior. I know you have. Now, my own testimony, of course, is that I've been indebted to God for over 60 years, and I'd rather be indebted to God than to the flesh and to the devil, which... uh, is the, uh, the uh, alternative. So let me get into this a little bit. Good morning and welcome today. Glad you've come. <clears throat> I want to look at this today in terms of the conception of our indebtedness. We're in Romans chapter 8. And uh, maybe somebody could give the young woman just came in one of these so that she can have the scripture verses that we're looking at. Okay. Um, I start out by talking about the fact of our indebtedness. He says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Um, The interesting thing is, he goes on to say, but not to the flesh. (laughs) We're debtors, but not to the flesh. Now, here's the thing. You and I have a tendency to live according to the flesh, which doesn't necessarily mean that your life is full of sin. What it means is that our life is full of self-interest. We like to take care of ourselves pretty well, okay? And there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. That's uh, That's not the issue. But sometimes in the process of taking care of ourselves, we set taking care of ourselves as the priority. Because we say, uh, I just want to get out of life as much as I can get out of life. And if I have time for church, fine. And if I don't, then that's fine too. Because I come first. I did my shouting for today. (laughs) Okay. John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, says that we live lives governed by a complex of sinful desires, motives, affections, principles, and purposes. Basically, we live our lives as though we 
owe it to ourselves to do what comes naturally. We follow the dictates of self-interest or pleasure or necessity, but we put ourselves first. Now, the Apostle Paul says that we have some obligations to God. We don't have obligations to the flesh, to ourselves. So from this negative idea that we're not debtors to the flesh, it's inferred that we're debtors to live according to something else. We're debtors to the Spirit of God. In fact, when we looked at verses 1 to 9 in Romans 8, we see how Paul argued that we're supposed to live according to the Spirit of God. So it's safe to say that in this verse, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that we are debtors not to live after the flesh, but to live after the Spirit of God. The question, of course, is how, how did we become debtors? How did we get ourselves into that position where we are in debt to God? What caused the change from our being debtors to the flesh to being debtors to the Spirit of God? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that it had to do with the work of God in our hearts. God came to us and did a wonderful work <clears throat> in our lives. The agent of indebtedness is, is God the Father. Notice what it said back there in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Now folks, Jesus was scourged by the Romans, he was mocked by the Jews, he was finally crucified by the Romans after the Jews kept crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so the Romans did. But the good news is that three days later, God raised him from the dead. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He is alive. His body was never found because he rose. He was seen by his disciples. He, was not, he did not manifest himself to people in general. He showed himself to his disciples. And they have reported to us that Jesus rose. He lived among them for another 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven. And he told them before he went, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem. Wait until the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven on you, and then you've got your marching orders to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so they waited in Jerusalem for 10 days, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Lord Jesus Christ poured out his Spirit upon the disciples, and you know that that was some prayer meeting that day. If you've ever read Acts chapter 2, you can see the, the flames, the fire, you can see the Spirit, you can see people just so enthusiastic. There were people there on the day of Pentecost from various countries, uh, Jews primarily that had moved to other areas of the world and they had learned other languages. There were some there that, that learned uh, an African language, some that learned some some uh, languages from Persia and, 
in different places, but they, as they all spoke, they could all understand each other because God worked a miracle that day. Well, the thing is, God raised Jesus from the dead. And likewise, God is going to raise you and me from the dead, assuming that we die and are put in a grave, something that happens to most folks, at least it has for quite a number of years. God promises that he's going to raise people from the dead if we meet a certain condition. And I, I really want to emphasize that what happened to Jesus, God has promised to make happen to you and to me. It's an amazing thing to think about. God is going to raise people from the dead. There was a condition. The condition is if the Spirit of God dwells in that person that has died. That's the condition. The condition is if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The Spirit of God, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, will raise believers from the dead in due time. However, as I said, the Holy Spirit must dwell in the believer when he dies in order for that to be, in order for that to happen. You might say now, well, how does the Holy Spirit get into my life? How does the Holy Spirit indwell? The classic explanation is in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Peter was preaching on that day of Pentecost, and people were amazed at what was going on there, and, and Peter was preaching away, and many of the folks said, well, what must we do? What must we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so repentance and faith is the requirement for receiving the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32 says that the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey Christ. What does it mean to obey Christ? We are, and this is what Peter said. We are his witnesses to these things. And so also the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. There are many places in Scripture where we are taught that to obey Christ simply means to believe in him. That's what he means. He says, believe on him who sent me. He that believeth in me shall have everlasting life. That's what it means to obey the gospel. Simply do what it says. And what does it say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So it's kind of a commandment. And if you obey that commandment, God saves you. And he gives you the Holy Spirit. It's not that difficult, is it? God will do that for us. In writing to the Corinthian church, Paul said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Think of yourself as God's temple and the Holy Spirit being in your hearts. Ephesians 1.13 says, Having believed in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul put it this way in Romans 5, 
5, he said, Now hope does not disappoint, but the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And in verse 15 of what you read in the responsive reading, it says, You have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now the next question is, what is it that God promises to do or did do that makes us debtors to him? The answer again is that the Father promises to raise believers from the dead and give them life in the eternal kingdom. Folks, I can tell you that a lot of your neighbors, the folks you're going to talk to, the only thing that they care about is living their 70 or 80 years, and then it doesn't matter what happens to them. That's the way they think. This is all you get. There isn't any more. But God has promised a lot more. And you and I can have it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God wants us to live with Christ in eternity. And he wants us to live in a resurrected body, which gives us mobility and allows us to participate in the heavenly kingdom. The exact phrase that he uses here in verse 11 is that he will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The life referred to here is life eternal in the presence of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And so again, the promise of God is that you and I might have a resurrected body that makes us debtors to God. Another way of stating this promise is seen in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, which again was in the responsive reading, where it said, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The next time I come, which is scheduled to be a couple weeks from now, weather permitting, I'm going to talk about that verse a lot more, about the part about suffering with him and about being glorified. So I'm not going to say a lot about that today. But what God promises us to believers, he promises glorification with Christ. He promised a sharing with him in the inheritance that he received for his victory over sin and death. Now, please understand something. This promise is far more than what is often called the immortality of the soul. People have believed in the immortality of the soul for long, long time, centuries, millenniums. There's the belief out there that the soul of man never dies. It's immortal. It never dies. It goes on somewhere in eternity. It's out there somewhere. It never perishes. 
But that is not what the Christian doctrine is all about. The Christian doctrine is that God will raise us from the dead and give us glorified bodies which will make us able to inhabit eternity. You see, the eternal kingdom is not going to be a citizenship of billions of disembodied spirits. I guarantee you that heaven is not going to be a place where we are just like ghosts floating around in space. That's not what the scriptures teach. But that's what a lot of people believe. And when they talk about immortality of the soul, that's what they're talking about. Some kind of a disembodied spirit, a ghost-like figure just floating through space somewhere. God didn't promise that. He promised us a resurrected body which enables us to participate in the eternal kingdom of God, of which we don't know as much about as we would like to. I think the practical application to that is that in that kingdom, you will recognize people that you knew when you lived here in your mortal body. There'll be a familiarity there. And that's good, isn't it? And you'll also have fellowship and conversation with the people that you knew on earth, plus a billion more that you need to get to know. Have fun. So, let's go back and look at that exact phrasing once again in verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to what? To your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now folks, a mortal body is one that is susceptible to death. As I look around here this morning, I see about 30 mortal bodies. I didn't actually count. We all live in a mortal body. We all live in a body that is subject to dying. Not something we talk about much, is it? It's not a pleasant thought. It's not as though we're just dying to die. Really. But... It's a fact for millenniums, for thousands and thousands of years. That's what has happened to people. They are mortal and they die. Now, God had said to Adam and Eve after they sinned, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Famous passage of scripture. And ever since Adam... All plants and animals share in Adam's fate. Now, here's a little quibble. Needless to say, our bodies are no longer mortal after we've been placed in a grave. At that point, our bodies are stone dead. It's not that they're capable of dying. It's already happened. So you might say, well, why in the world did Paul say this the way he did? 
Well, I think there's a reason he said it. I believe everything the scripture says. And if Paul used the word mortal, he must have had a reason. Now, I think that Peter, or Paul, firmly believed in his day that someday, maybe in his lifetime, multitudes of believers would actually be raptured from the earth without ever being placed in a grave. And the Bible says that when that happens, we shall be changed on the way up. It's an interesting thing. And guess what? People today still look forward to the time when they hear the trumpet, when they hear the voice saying, come to me. And it says that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we look forward to that. You can say hallelujah if you want. Yeah, it's okay. So when Paul said this, I believe that he had that in his mind, that one day these mortal bodies will be changed into an immortal, resurrected body. I think of Philippians 3, 20 and 21, where it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. See, God is able to do everything that I've been talking about. He really is. I hope you believe that. The thought of the second coming of Jesus Christ was never far from Paul's mind. Now, we still haven't talked about the nature of this indebtedness, and I want to look at that uh, as we look at verses 12 to 15, okay? Now, as debtors, there is, there's bad debt as well as good debt. Bad debt would be to be debtors to the flesh, to live uh, according to the flesh. And I've already talked about that a little bit. But I need to add a couple things. Verse 13 makes it clear why being a debtor to the flesh is bad debt. Notice what it says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, bad debt... The problem is there's only one outcome to it. When you live after the flesh, there's only one possible outcome, and that's death. You can't go anywhere else. Now, whether you take that to refer to the literal dying of the body, or whether you take it to refer to the figurative dying of the spirit, if you walk according to the flesh, there will be a sense in which you will die daily until you finally die. It doesn't get any better when you live according to the flesh. 
You have no future, nothing to look forward to. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The prize for doing what comes naturally is death. Pursuing the works of the flesh produces a paycheck that has no value whatsoever. And you know, because doing the devil's work yields nothing but death, we might ask the logical question, why spend your time pursuing the things of the flesh? It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do you any good. It has no future. You have nothing to gain by it. Oh, you say, well, I, I just want to have fun. And when it's over, it's over. I understand that a lot of folks think that way. But if you're a Christian, remember this, you don't owe the devil anything. You don't owe the devil anything, folks. Now, I want to make a politically incorrect statement at this time. Please forgive me. Please forgive me, but I want to illustrate. I'm only saying this to illustrate what I'm talking about. We live in a day today where there is a homosexual agenda. Regardless of what you think about it, you need to understand that homosexual behavior is a work of the flesh and is never approved of by God. All right? Now, continuance in that sin can only result in death, as Paul has argued in the passage. But what does the gay community argue? What do they try to tell you? How do they justify their behavior? What they say is, look, I was born this way. I was born this way. If, if God created me this way, then why does he have a problem with my living this way out? And that's their argument. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But it's not a good argument for the simple reason that every single one of us have been born with a tendency to live outside of the will of God. There is not a one of us that was born with, a, with the internal desire to live our next hundred years doing God's will. Every single one of us had to come to the place where we said, my sin is not getting me anywhere. I need a Savior. And so you repented and you believed and God changed your heart and changed your life, gave you new life in Christ. And so if you are walking in the Spirit, if you are attempting to please God, it's because you recognize that there is a bad debt and a good debt. And you want to be obligated to God and not to the flesh. You and I were born to do what comes naturally, folks. I can tell you that. Every single one of us was born with the desire to do what is best for me. 
Unfortunately, God gets a hold of our lives sometimes and says, you know what? It's not all about you. It's about me. It's about glorifying God. It's about the hope of eternal life. It's about treating your neighbors with love as yourself. Now, the thing that we need to understand here is that Adam and Eve were created without sin in their life. And yet, after they sinned, God said that they needed to be saved after that. Now, God's provision of grace is still available for sinners. Repentance and faith is a requirement for cleansing. 1 John 1, 7-9 is still true. It says, if we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's the good debt? The good debt can be defined in two ways. And actually, I do want you to take this home with you. I put it on the outline so that in case I didn't get to it, you at least would have it on your paper. There are two, two areas that we can call good debt. And, and the first one is that we have an obligation to put to death the deeds of the body. Because of the promise, because of what God has done for us, because of the promise of a resurrected life in heaven for eternity, we have an obligation, God says, to put to death the deeds of the body. Now the closest that Paul comes to giving us a list in the book of Romans is found in chapter 13, verses 8 to 14, where he quotes, first of all, the second five of the Ten Commandments, when he says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, or covet. Those are all works of the flesh. And I'm sure that all of us at some time or another <laughs> have pursued those, those. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody, but you thought about it. <laughs> okay. And Jesus, of course, defined uh, anger as murder in your heart. So, you know, be careful about these things. And then in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 13, Paul said, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, please don't miss the words that I read in that verse where it said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the antidote to walking in the flesh is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The antidote to following what you think is just best for you 
is to clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Become conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be transformed in your mind so that you desire in your heart to be like Jesus. And then the good news was, of course, in 1 John 3, 1, where it says that when we see him face to face, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the meantime, we're just trying to get there, aren't we? We're trying to get there, folks. Now, he also points out another antidote to the works of the flesh is the practice of loving others. He said, again, this comes from Romans 13, he said in verse 8, Owe oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. He also said in verse 9 there, he also reminded us to love your neighbor as yourselves. And in verse 10 he said, Love does no harm to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, some people think, what does it mean to love my neighbor? You know what the first thing is in loving your neighbor? You say, how can I love my neighbor? I don't, I don't even spend much time with them. You know, the first thing, do no harm. Folks, that at least is one aspect of loving your neighbor. Do no harm. That's what Paul says there in this passage. I just finished up six weeks of tutoring a ninth grade student in our public school where I live. I had to tutor him in six ninth grade subjects. Biology, algebra, social studies, classical civilization, English. I can't even remember them all. There was six of them. And it all had to do because one day in the classroom he took a cup of hot chocolate and poured it down someone's back. Why do I mention this now? If he had had in his heart do no harm he wouldn't have gotten suspended for six weeks. Of course, it was okay. I made about $3,500 doing it. But. <laughs> so, <laughs> all things work together for good, folks. Yeah, I know. But seriously, that was a very serious problem. And his teacher is still terrorized and does not want him back in her classroom. And I understand it. In fact, he, 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 is, he was back in school this past week, but I'm still tutoring him in Spanish. <laughs> because his teacher just won't let him back in. It, 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 in fact, she, she got sick thinking about it. And so I had to cover her whole section of classes one day. Do no harm. Folks, if you can just get to that point, get to that point. Do no harm. 
There's a lot more to loving your neighbor, but that's a good place to start. You know that? Okay. Now I'm running out of time. In fact, I ran out of time. I'm on borrowed time. <laughs> the second obligation is in verse 14, which is to be led by the Spirit of God. We have the obligation to be led by the Spirit of God. So in your life as a Christian, you are obligated to God to put to death the deeds of the body by His Spirit. You don't have to do it on yourself. God will do it for you when you say, Lord, deal with this problem I've got. The second obligation is be led by the Spirit. In fact, Paul feels so strongly about that that he says, you know what? This is how we identify those who are children of God. We identify people as being the children of God when they are led by the Spirit of God. You say, how do I be led by the Spirit of God? I'll tell you an easy way. Memorize Galatians 5, and 23 and put it into practice. You know what that says? Those verses say, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Folks, if you get those nine virtues into your heart, it'll only be because you were led by the Spirit of God. I'll tell you exactly what will happen when you come to the Lord in prayer and you say, God, I have a problem with self-control. Can you help me? You know what he'll do? He'll put you into a situation where he makes it very vivid to you that you have a problem with self-control and that you need to trust the Spirit of God to get you out of that. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> but how do you learn lessons? How do you learn your lessons? How, does, how do you discover what God expects of you, sometimes by going through the waters. So, it'll work out. Okay, I'm going to stop with that because, very honestly, I am going to come back uh, and pick up uh, the next time I come. I, I was going to sing a song to you, but I'm not going to. We're going to all just stand and sing together a song. But the song that I was going to sing to you was one entitled, There's Joy in Serving Jesus. you ever remember that song? Some of you ever sing that? There's joy in serving Jesus. Every moment, every hour, every day. Joy that throbs within my heart. Remember that song? We're not going to sing that now. We're going to sing a different one. We're going to sing face to face because I'm looking forward to that day when I see Jesus face to face. And I'm looking forward, I hope, to hear from him. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I hope you're looking forward to that too. Dear Lord, I pray